Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp Online Counseling. Is something bothering you? Are you freaking out about the pandemic? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? Have you ever struggled with writer's block? I have, but guess what? BetterHelp Online Counseling is here for you. Get connected with a licensed professional therapist in under 24 hours and get the help you need in a safe and private online environment. No waiting rooms, no traffic. It's convenient, professional, and affordable, and it's available for clients worldwide. Whether you're dealing with depression, stress, anxiety, trauma, family stuff, LGBTQ matters, whatever it is, BetterHelp has licensed professional counselors ready to assist you. Anything you share is confidential, and please note this is not a crisis line. Best of all, listeners of this program get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash otherppl. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash otherppl. Get 10% off. Get some help, all right? Okay. Hey there, everybody. How are you? What's happening out there, wherever you are? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. This is The Other People Show. It's good to be with you. Mary South is on the program today. Her new story collection is called You Will Never Be Forgotten. It's available from FSG Originals. Mary South, You Will Never Be Forgotten is the name of the book. Great conversation with her. That's coming up. In just a second, today's episode is made possible by Northwestern University Press and their upcoming release, Tapping Out, by poet Nandi Comer. The relentless motions and blinding colors of Lucha Libre are the backdrop to this arresting book, which will be published on May 15th. Comer employs Mexican freestyle wrestling as a lyrical motif to look behind the masks we all wear in society. Listeners of this program get a 20% discount on Tapping Out, or any other title with the promo code PPL20. Just go to nupress.northwestern.edu. That's nupress.northwestern.edu and enter the promo code PPL20. Get 20% off your purchase at nupress.northwestern.edu. Okay? Today's episode is also brought to you by Rare Bird Books, publisher of The Good Family Fitzgerald, the new novel by Joseph DePrisco. The Good Family Fitzgerald is a saga of money and ambition and crime 
and the Catholic Church. This is a sprawling, passionate story shaped against a background of social discord. The Good Family Fitzgerald depicts the lives of Irish and Italian Americans for whom the church is both an organizing principle and a corrupting force. The Good Family Fitzgerald by Joseph DePrisco, available now from Rare Bird Books. My guest today is Mary South. Her debut story collection, You Will Never Be Forgotten, is available now from FSG Originals. I had a delightful time talking with Mary over the transom. She was sheltering in New York City. I'm sheltering here in Los Angeles. And this is our conversation. Here she is, folks. This is Mary South. And the story collection, one more time, is called You Will Never Be Forgotten. I've grown up around technology and I've seen it change really dramatically just within my own lifetime. Um, I remember in the 90s, for example, when like Amazon was this just sort of uh, book, uh, kind of a quirky book company that you could order books online and and get them shipped to your house. And um, now it's sort of this, you know, capitalistic force that we that sells can sell you anything from, you know, now hand sanitizer to, to books and is sort of dominating the books market. And, um, same with like the internet, like, you know, um, going from the dial up modem to now just this hyper fast, uh, connection we all have, like where you're getting the news in real time on Twitter and, and getting reactions to it in real time on Twitter. Um, so I wanted to like examine how that sort of, interacts with our psychology um because you know that they have said that social media and all these other things do make people more lonely and they they they're designed almost to be addictive um well yeah i want to interrupt you because i i just uh, i just quit social media like you know in theory i still look at it i, I like read it because like Twitter became sort of like my internet. That was where I got my news. And so it's hard for me to like give up, like looking at certain feeds to just try to figure out what's going on. But I'm not like using it to communicate anymore. Um, myself, uh, this show has a, a feed, but I have Joey Grantham running it for me. Uh, uh my social media director. <laughs> um, yeah, no, Joey Grantham. He's great. Yeah. He's a great poet and he's doing a good job. He's yeah. Good yeah. He's, be- he's better at it than I am. I think I'm better off having him do it. So, um, I guess like when you say like how social media and technology affects our psychology and how this was interesting to you, um, like in your research or in your meditating on this and your fictions, like, like, did you come to any conclusions? Um, well, I, I do think that it does something, um, there's like a sort of a sameness to the content, um, so you'll be on Twitter and you'll be reading a, a news item about something like terrible the president has done recently. Um, and then right after that, that'll be like a random post with like a cat in it or an, an animal doing something funny and charming. And then after that, something else totally unrelated. You know, I remember when uh, Twitter was talking about like what the best chicken sandwich is and it was all happening during the same time as like some other horrible news stuff. <laughs> And, uh, I, you know, it's a sort of very dissociating and sort of like numbing effect of like when everything's sort of filtered in in the same way. Um, I guess you could you could argue that the news has always been like that. That like in newspapers, there's, you know, uh, 
headlines and articles presented alongside advertisements and, and that kind of thing. But it doesn't feel the same to me. It feels like it's just sort of easier to like numb or check out or, or avoid looking at things and avoid feeling things. Um, so it's sort of, it's sort of concerning to me. Um, like how, how that happens. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I'm starting to, uh, and I'm in the past, I think I would qualify as being a news junkie. I do follow the news pretty, uh, I've like read the newspaper since I was a kid and I'm, I've never been ashamed of that. Like I, I like to be an active citizen and I like to try to, you know, be aware of what people in positions of power are doing, you know, in our name and on our behalf or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I'm getting to the point now where things are so twisted and grim and stupid that, you know, like last night I, I tried to watch the news to just because, uh, I don't do it during the day. I, you know, I try to stay away from all that while I'm working during the day, but then at night I try to just like watch like, you know, at least 20 minutes of the news to just sort of get the gist. And even that I'm just like, you know what, like maybe it is, it's like, is it better just to shut it all out and to completely not participate in any of this? Like, don't watch the news. Don't look at social media. Don't even, you know, don't be involved at all and just like live in your own head. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, like, wh- where do you fall on that? Like, I, I, I wrestle with it. I have friends who, you know, they're just like, yeah, I don't watch the news. They have no idea what's going on. They don't pay attention to Trump. They don't do any of it. And to me, that's like uh, dangerous because if you don't pay attention, then these, these, uh, people can just run amok. Like I feel a sense of obligation to at least be, you know, somewhat aware and to participate, um, like as a citizen, but maybe they are, are they right? Am I the fool for letting this stuff pollute me, you know, my mind or whatever? Um, I mean, I think there's, everybody has to figure out what works for them. Um, and, uh, I think there's definite benefits for checking out. Um, I think we give Trump, like it's important to report on what he's doing, of course, but um, we give him too much airtime and like attention um, in terms of like him and what he says and that kind of thing. And it allows him to like sort of dominate the discourse and present things like the way um, he wants. And um, there's like a, there's a great, um, cognitive scientist uh, I follow on Twitter. I'm actually trying to remember his name right now. Um, let's see if I can find it. But um, I don't know. Uh, he has talks a lot about framing and um, like how um, we frame arguments and how news headlines are, are um, you know, constructed, like influences how we perceive you know, the argument or just the news that's in the facts that's being reported. Um, uh, so I think that sometimes turning it off is important in order to even get a, like an accurate sense of it. Um, I think his name is George Lakoff. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I know him yeah, yeah, from, Ber- from Berkeley. Berkeley. I, I, I'm familiar with his, I'm familiar with his work, but I, I actually didn't follow him on Twitter back when I was on, but he, uh, I remember his work. He does a lot of, uh, what is it? It's like, he does like, he'll do like, uh, 
case studies or, you know, he'll evaluate groups of people to figure out like what messaging and what framing works, you know, like you were saying, like how to frame issues in ways that cause people to respond. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and like, and like language is so important in how we, and how things are framed and how things are discussed and, um, just how you make an argument. I think there was, he had a recent post that was something like, you know, state the, state the, um, positive position I, I forget exactly what it was but it was like instead of coming out saying like i don't believe in what this person says you're you're basically reiterating their argument as your first salvo your opening salvo which gives them more power than like what you're trying to say um so he had this whole like thing about how to reposition the framing and um i think sometimes like you know, we saw as we saw in the 2016 election, just Trump got so much more coverage than so many of the other candidates, even though it was bad and everybody was making fun of him for being a buffoon. It still had the effect of like putting him in people's minds and like kind of reinforcing the fact that he was, you know, a strong contender or something. I don't know. Um, it didn't have the effect of like making him less viable, clearly. So, um well, and I think, I think, I think too, I think too that, uh, I think too that there's a, a situation with him where he had been in people's living rooms on reality TV for a decade. So there were, you know, for anybody who watched The Apprentice, I feel like, you know, he had a decade to kind of work on people and to situate himself in their minds as like this, you know, sort of patriarchal authority figure in a, you know, a leather executive chair or whatever, making making bold decisions, uh, for the camera. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He definitely had a lot of, um, just instant name recognition, instant, you know, persona recognition, you know, he's got that, the hair and everything. <laughs> so, um, he certainly had that working in his favor too. Um, in terms of being a, a candidate for the race. So um, when did you when did you write these stories? Like what what was the the time span? It actually took ten years. Um, so I started them in my my MFA, and then um, there's so there's a couple of of the stories that date back to that time. But not Setsuko, which is at the end of the collection, is, is one of them. Um, and the Age of Love, which is near the beginning, is another. And then after I just I started you know, writing some more and then some of the stories that I'd written in my MFA that I thought would be included in the collection, I would look back on them and say, no, you know, this really sh doesn't fit anymore or I think I've improved as a writer. So I would just, you know, start doing that, like writing more and then reevaluating and either delete one and add another or sort of continue that way until I, I felt I had something that was strong enough language-wise, um, idea-wise, and stories also that talk to each other. I wanted them to sort of um, feel like they all belonged in the same book. Yeah, no, so, I, want, I want to ask you about that. I always ask uh, writers of story collections this question, or I think, or some variation of this question, which is, like, at what point did it dawn on you what the thematic unifiers were for the collection is it something you started with or is it something you arrived at as the story started to accumulate um it started it arrived fairly soon but i wouldn't say immediately um so natsatsuko is has technology in the like the mother 
clones her daughter. Her daughter dies tragically, so she clones her and then tries to remake her memories. And that, to me, like, that was mostly about, like, trauma and loss and grieving. Um, it wasn't so concerned with the cloning aspect. And then I wrote, um, you know, The Age of Love in my MFA, and that's it involves, like, uh, elderly men who are in a um, <laughs> home who are dialing phone sex hotlines. And that's also to, like, alleviate their loneliness and their need for human connection. And then there's also, like, a, it's complicated by the plot of one of the caretakers for them, like, finding out his girlfriend is is talking to one of the older men after learning of this, learning of their their loneliness and their need for companionship. So it was mostly about like their, the character's emotions first and how it explores and exploring trauma and loss and relationships between people and, you know, how we can connect or sometimes the difficulty of connecting with each other. But I started to notice that I was doing that using technology for either the, the cloning or the, the phone sex hotlines. And I started to then write to that, theme of like how do we how we use technology to mitigate pain or self-soothe or or like circumvent connection or find connection and how it works or usually doesn't work um and so then started writing stories more in that direction and i also um found like news articles and different things that inspired me so for example um one of the stories realtor to the damned is about um, a man who starts texting um, his the number of his deceased wife and gets texts back, and that was inspired from reading a news article about people doing that very same thing that um, they'll just want to say goodbye or they miss the person who's now um, has passed away. They miss them so much that they will either call and leave voicemails or they'll text the numbers the old phone number of that person. But the phone company will have reassigned the numbers to um, new people, so then they'll get texts back. And sometimes those interactions were really like tender and kind. Um, so I wanted to write sort of a story about it and some of the different ways, like um, technology is both a trial as well as a a force for good sometimes in this world. So yeah, I mean, I think. Uh technology is a factor in these stories, but it's not central. It's, it's sort of, uh, maybe like the part of the frame on which you hang the very human, um, stories that you were trying to tell. And so I'm wondering, and it sounds maybe like this was the case. Like, are you, when you're trying to come up with an idea for a story, are you looking around at the various technologies that people interact with on a daily basis and starting there and then saying, okay, well, you know, phone sex, like people are so lonely. They're calling up these 900 numbers or whatever it is to try to get somebody to talk to them, um, intimately. Like, did you just start with that and then say, well, you know, what would be a place I could potentially, uh, situate this? And then you move on from there to, uh, an old folks home, like, or was it vice versa? I think it, um, it usually starts with the emotion first. I mean, in, in some cases, like with the um, uh, the story I just described, Realtor to the Damned, it, it started sort of with finding that news article first. But with Natsetsuko, and maybe this is just it being one of the earlier stories that I wrote, it really was started by thinking about grief and thinking about, um, you know, 
grieving is actually fairly mysterious to me. Like when, once you experience like a, a huge loss, which we all will at some point, like, um, you know, a parent dying or a loved one. And, um, uh, how do we move on from that? Um, cause we, you know, ultimately do, we go through the stages of grief, like denial, bargaining, anger, depression. And, um, it's, I don't know how we ultimately move on. Um, have that you, we do. Have you have you been through a big loss in your life? I had um, early as a child, like some relatives die um, uh, very sadly. Um, uh, one to suicide, and another um, was an accident, um, a very sad car accident. And um, what were these? Really were these like aunts and aunts and uncles, or? One was an aunt, one was my grandmother. Um, so, and um, my father found my my grandmother, and um, she hadn't she hadn't been well, um, and um, you know made him extremely depressed for a while. Um, you know, finding your mom after she's you know, uh, <laughs> sorry, this is getting really dark, but you know, finding her after she's uh, you know committed a suicide attempt so um but ultimately you know you grieve and you heal and you um move on and um but that how that happens is 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 you know when does it happen when how does the process look like it's it's of course different for everyone but also ultimately kind of mysterious you know um so for that one story, I was thinking like, what if someone, you know, experienced such this uh, huge loss that um, she just sort of refused to, to move on? What if someone got stuck in the stages of grief, like got stuck in, in say, bargaining? So um, she's she's essentially stuck in bargaining by like trying to remake her daughter so she doesn't have, have to feel the like, the depth of her grief of like uh, the fact that she, she died. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's funny. You talk about it. Uh, it's it, the mysterious part of grief. Uh, some of it, sometimes I think it just has to do with memory and how over time your memories just fade. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost grim to say, but maybe it's necessary for some kind of, uh, healing to take place, you know, or scar tissue to build up and for you to just be able to carry on as a, as a functioning organism or semi-functioning organism, because, uh, you know, if you have all of these memories, like super solid and immediate, it's going to be pretty hard. I think part of it has to do with like the necessity of forgetting almost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you do, you do have to sort of forget and, um, and, and that's hard too to like, except that you're going to forget or that you're going to have to let go. Um, and sometimes feeling new emotions, um, like might almost feel like a betrayal, you know, like once you have a moment of levity, um, you remember something funny, for example, that the, the lost person did, um, and have a, and laugh about it and remember some, some good things. That's like, um, you can feel like, no, I, I need to, you know, I don't want to let go. I don't want to let go of the sadness. It feels almost like you're like having, having to let go of them in a way and move on. But you have to move on with your life. You have to move on into the future. So, 
Um, so yeah, it is, it is mysterious. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Your book, your your stories are very psychologically astute. Um, I guess this is something that one finds often in uh, like accomplished uh, literary fiction. But with you, it's it's like you know it's definitely very evident to me. And I'm curious about the reading that you do, either as research for the book or just for pleasure, and whether or not you read uh, like books about psychology. Whether or not you've done a lot of therapy, like. You just seem to have like a very uh, good command of uh, the terrain. And uh, I'm curious about that. Like, where does it come from? Or is it just come from deep reading and in, in the fiction, you know, the fiction universe? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a bit of both. Um, so, I mean, I, for one thing, I love research, um, which is maybe evident by some of the stories, like the story that is about a famous architect. Um, I read so many books about architecture I read. Um, I'm looking at it right here. The Future of Architecture Since 1889 by Jean-Louis Cohen. Um, and um, that, I read that. I read like so many architecture blogs, so many like um, uh, just looking at renderings of buildings and, and like investigating more deeply like them famous architects I loved like Zaha Hadid or um reading Rem Koolhaas's book so um and that was all just for one short story one like 30 page short story I felt like maybe sometimes um doing research is um a way to like hide and and feel productive while not actually writing because writing is so difficult sometimes (laughs) But so there's a mix of that. And then I, you know, I have, I have done therapy. I've, I've had my own um, struggles in life with like anxiety and depression, um, you know, and um, so in examining where that comes from and um, like how to, you know, work with it or um, cope with it better, that kind of thing. So I think there's maybe a mix of both. I, I do think about, you know, my characters and their psychology a lot and um, where they're at. And a lot of times there's something they're not willing to look at or they're, they have a trauma in their lives that they haven't fully confronted that they would, 
it would be well good for them to confront in therapy. I mean, like the woman in the the title story who's um, working as a content moderator and also like obsessed with her rapist. Um, sort of by the end of the story, she realizes like, oh, I need, I can't keep doing this. Like, she needs to do the like work of like actually moving on rather than fixating on it. Um, and you know, also means sort of fully accepting like the inability to control the situation anymore or, or seek a resolution to it that would feel, you know, just or satisfying in a certain sense and the ideal sense maybe. But, um, yeah, that's an interesting one because you talk about the need to do the work of moving on, but I find when it comes to, to human suffering and especially like these big, seemingly intractable problems, so often we try to self-soothe with technology or alcohol and drugs or television or whatever it is as a means of avoiding, of not actually looking at and fully feeling whatever it is that's making us sad or depressed or anxious or uncomfortable. Um, and so, I mean, that's the work of therapy, right? You, you, you go, I mean, I think it is, I haven't done therapy, but like you go in and you, you work through something in depth, but then at some point you also, um, need to, I mean, I guess the word forgiveness is thrown around. You don't necessarily forgive your rapist, but you need to, you need to let go of the past somehow like that. That's the part of it. I guess that when you said it felt nebulous to me, like, how do you do that? Like, do you have any insight into that? Like the actual hard work of moving on? Um, I wish I, I wish I had, um, you know, more insight. I mean, I, I still go to therapy now. I, I think it's just, I recommend it to everyone. Like whether you're experiencing something deeply traumatic and that you want to investigate or a loss or just, you know, want to learn more about yourself. I think it's, it's really important and, and helpful. Um, uh, it just sort of reveals a lot of things about you that, maybe you didn't even see before didn't or didn't question like and how where your coping mechanisms were learned or where they came from and um or why you are avoid certain things or don't want to look at certain things and um i think doing that kind of deep work you know helps in in moving on from things or you know or just moving on better in life in general um as far as like grief and um you know disappointment like deep disappointment um i don't know it's just like in the mystery of time you know uh, i was like talking with a friend and um saying like you'll be intensely grieving and then you'll like be spacing out like looking like a jar of olives or something and um, once you realize that's happening, like it'll maybe even seem de like very funny and you'll you'll laugh about it. Like I'm really having this moment with these this, you know, jar of olives right now. And um, like it, it may seem like sort of ridiculous at a point, actually, and like some maybe even a little bit funny. And that's like it's just how some of the light comes back in, you know, little by little, I think, piece by piece. Sometimes it just comes back in. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think about like grief experiences I've had where, you know, in the first, you know, two, three, five, six, seven, whatever months, you know, however long it takes. But when something big happens to you, you experience a big loss, you know, obviously 
the person you lost is on your mind all the time, you know, right when it happens in the immediate aftermath, those first few weeks, you know, multiple times a day, that person is in your mind, um, if not all day. And then over time, (laughs) you don't think about them as much. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I, you know, it's not something that like I have tracked in the past or, you know, but it is something I like sort of recognize in retrospect, like, oh yeah, like as I've gotten farther away from it, it has dominated my mind screen less. And that's for the good ultimately, because I'm not feeling as uh, sad about it and I'm finding a way to kind of move forward in my life. Like what else are you supposed to do? But Mm -hmm. Um, that seems to be the process. I think this is tied to what we were talking about earlier about, you know, the need to forget. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Um, this is another thing that I mentioned in that one story, the realtor to the damned. I read an article about, um, memory in, in the mind and it seems like the more you remember something, um, the less and less accurate it is. So um, if there's like you have a really fond memory that you revisit often and, you know, um, like, oh, that that day at the lake or wasn't that wonderful. It's probably maybe the least accurate memory in your mind than if if you just revisited something just once, remembered it once. Um, And that's really funny to me. Memory is this kind of constructed thing. Um, yeah, yeah. You mean like you're, and the the thing is, is that if you're remembering the same thing over and over again, each time you remember it, you are layering it with some new flourishes, or you're subtracting things that were previously there that might have been actual. I mean, it just becomes this kind kind of convoluted process. Yeah, it is. It is convoluted, but maybe I don't know. Maybe that's partly how grief works to lessen things. That um, by re- by remembering, you know it like lessens the hurt somehow because it just becomes familiar or you create it again in your own mind and are able to bring some more solace in or something. I'm not sure. Yeah. And we, you know, you talk about, you you talk about uh, technology as like an influence on your work and you know how it's kind of embedded itself into your stories and into the lives of your characters. Like I think about um, grief and loss in the age of smartphones and in the age of constant, you know, documentation of self and one's family and friends or whatever it is. And, you know, imagine, I I think about like, wow, you lose somebody and you have like this huge trove of photos and videos uh, of this person. You could almost spend the rest of your life going through them. Like that can't be healthy in a certain way. Like it's nice to have memories, but Jesus, like at a certain point you got to get on with it. Yeah. um, I mean, I I think that, that that's the kind of thing that interests me and also frightens me a little bit that, um, you know, the more of this kind of, the more that our lives are lived online, that it'd be really easy to just sort of get lost in there after something devastating happens. It's, it's, um, it is a little bit, um, both fascinating and concerning, you know, like, and you, you see people who, um, have passed away, like, and then they have, um, I guess you can memorialize someone's Facebook page, but sometimes people go, just go back and an anniversary of someone's death, like keep commenting on their, on their Facebook page or, um, you know, and it's in a way that's, it's nice that that's there, that it's like, you can sort of pay, pay a visitation in a certain sense. Um, but it's also like, 
I can also see it being very, very unhealthy. <laughs> so yeah, I, I I've been through that. Like I had, I lost a buddy and created like a Facebook uh, memorial page, and people would come in on like birthdays and you know the day of his death and things like that, and sort of write notes and remembrances. But I did that for a couple of years, and then I I ended up quitting Facebook. But I was just like, this is just morbid, or I don't know. I like I think for a little bit it, it's good to do that stuff, but after a while it's like, well, when do when do we stop doing this? Do we just keep doing this for the rest of our lives? Like, um. I don't know. I, like, I don't judge anybody for doing what they need to do. But for me, it was time to to move on. Well, and Facebook in particular is so terrible about things sometimes. Like, you'll log in one day and it'll be like, see, you're cel- celebrating seven years of friendship with so-and-so. And it's actually someone you had, like, a terrible falling out with or something. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's like, Thanks. Thanks for the reminder. You know, they were like, do you want to like send them like a, like, you know, a virtual bottle of champagne or something? It's like, no, Facebook, <laughs> you don't, you don't know who this, this person is to me now, <laughs> you know? So but... what, what about using social media and how you cultivate and maintain friendships like in your personal life? Like this is something I struggle with a lot. I think a lot of men struggle with this maybe more so than women, generally speaking. But I have like fantasies of like actually hanging out with people on a more regular basis and like developing a real sense of uh, community and friendship that feels tangible and real and, and regular as opposed to like, you know, sporadic and uh, too often virtual. Like, what, do you uh, do you find yourself on social media too much or are you somebody who has like a healthy relationship with it and some discipline and, you know, a, a health like a an IRL social life that you feel good about? Um, I definitely have um, some really close friends that until, until the coronavirus hit, I would see quite regularly in real life. And um, some of them are not on Facebook anymore entirely similar, similar to you. Um, I mean, I, some of, some people I have kept in touch with on Facebook that, and um, I would say Twitter that like I wouldn't have necessarily otherwise um like just people from high school or college that I maybe lost a little bit of touch with but it's like easier to like connect over Facebook just more casually um than it would be to like find an email address and send them an email and ask how they're doing and then it just facilitates a sort of easier like getting back in touch kind of quality um but I, I guess I really do would prefer more real interaction than, than digital ones. I mean, that's sort of the, the big bummer about the, the current moment is like, um, I think despite the fact that everybody's rallying and like doing a lot of zooming and, um, you know, video conferencing and chatting, like there is something like it's not replaceable about seeing people in person and just seeing like the way someone smiles in real time or, um, this like an actual like physical presence of someone like you know not not even a romantic sense just in a in a friend sense being able to give someone a hug or you know this doesn't feel the same <laughs> somehow you know right right well yeah and and you know zoom i should say isn't zoom like a chinese company aren't they just getting facial recognition on basically everybody who's using it isn't it some big um scam and we're all using it right now and basically just like handing over our 
identities essentially to uh, nefarious forces, or am I paranoid? <laughs> I don't think you're paranoid. I've I've heard that there have been definite like privacy concerns raised about Zoom, so that those definitely need to be addressed. Um, and then there's like really awkward things I've heard about it, like um, you, you know, there's like the option to do like a private chat in a Zoom meeting. Um, just between you and like one other person in the chat or in, in the meeting. But um, I've heard that once the meeting's over and the facilitator can like download the, the meeting, like and for like later use, like all of the chats will be like there for that person to read. Not, not just the like um, public ones, but the ones privately between people as well. So like you better not have, um, you know, talked smack about the the organizer of the meeting because they'll be able to read everything that was said <laughs> yeah so. well i mean no that's like that's a good point is that these technologies whether it's like you know an alexa or zoom or even just the camera on your laptop like you know these devices are basically designed to surveil uh or at least to be ex explo exploited for those purposes and i don't i some i get paranoid sometimes like what are we doing they you know who knows what about us i mean there's part of me that could be kind of fatalistic about it where I'm like, well, my face is out there and I'm basically just telling Alexa what songs to play. So if somebody wants to know that, you know, have at it. But um, I don't know. I can also be worried that, you know, there's an invasion of privacy going on or there's going to be some sort of exposure that's going to come back to haunt me down the line when, you know, the dystopia that we're living in now is like even more steroidal than it currently is. Yeah, steroidal is a good word for it. Um, I mean, I think your Alexa is definitely spying on you, you know, sending your any good information to Jeff Bezos headquarters, you know. So, right. um, I mean, it, it is a huge concern. It's funny, like the next um, project I'm set to work on is a novel, and that's about um, women in a hospice for ultra well ultra wealthy people who are turning into um, household objects. So like um, microwaves and um, toasters and flat screen TVs. And it's funny, like now with all of our devices sort of like gaining some ability to like record and remember certain things about us, like it has some, some resonances in that sense too. Like what does my TV know about me, you know? Right. Right. Yeah, because TVs have cameras now too, don't they? They can watch you. Yeah, I mean, I, or like, was there something about smart fridges or something? I don't know. I've just assumed like every appliance is gonna gonna be spying on me at some point. Yeah, if it, if it's a smart anything, you probably you know you're probably being spied on. Yeah. So let's. Uh, this is sort of connected to a question that I wanted to ask you about your book and the stories in it. Is is the the role of work in your characters' lives and how prominently featured it often is. You know, the jobs that we do, the way that we spend our time, I guess the majority of our time, you know, when we're working people. Um, and it seems like something you've given quite a lot of thought to. Um, I think, for example, of the woman in your title story working one of these sort of hidden, like subterranean jobs of extreme toxicity <laughs> right, uh, right you know and there's a lot of that in the world you know that uh we may or may not have awareness of but you just talk a little bit about how that went into your thinking when you were constructing the stories in your book mm -hmm. um well one thing that's that's interesting to me to think about is like um 
who's visible and who's and who's not and that's often related to like who's valuable and who's not like who does capitalism in our society who do we think is valuable and we have this sort of I want to say like fetishization of work but like we associate so much value intrinsic value of a person based on like work or their job or what they produce you know um and that's often related to like how visible you are so um content moderators like are are kept out of sight and we don't really want to think about people doing these these jobs because we don't want to think about um someone having to like hide horrible content like violent and traumatic content from our view you know Um, well and and you know what we should probably um hit pause for a second here uh, so people listening know what we're talking about precisely uh when we talk about content moderators you're talking about somebody who might work for say youtube or google or whatever and they are charged with sifting through content on these sites and removing things that are like ultra offensive like people you know getting shot or being beaten or doing awful horrible things correct yes that's right so you know for people listening who might not have ever given a second of thought to this if you if this is your job this is what you do 40 or 60 hours a week or whatever it is this is going to have an, an enormously uh toxic impact on your psyche like you would have to be made of some really tough stuff or you would have to be like you know a psychopath to not be impacted by this yeah there's been a um, a lot of articles like a, some most recently on the verge um about how content moderators are suffering from really really um pretty bad PTSD um which is understandable when you're like you know sifting through all of this um deeply upsetting footage it's it's real you know um well, so. you know, it brings up, it brings to mind something that I think about a lot and I think it can be easy to, to overlook simply because it's almost like the, you know, it's the water that we're swimming in. But, um, you know, there's so much attention paid, it seems to like, what do we put into our bodies? Everybody's like really fixated on food and eating clean and, or not everybody, but a lot of people are, you know, and, and, uh, is it organic and, um, and nowadays with coronavirus, did I, did I slather my produce in Purell or, you know, like whatever, right. whatever people are doing, but, uh, I don't think that the toxicity of media, you know, especially like entertainment media, um, gets the same treatment oftentimes. I think people just assume like, oh yeah, I'm just watching this like really violent movie and it's just violent and whatever I can deal with it. I'm an adult, but I used to sort of be that way. I was a lot, I think I was a lot either, I was either tougher or just less aware of it. But nowadays I'm I'm not likely to want to watch something that is going to traffic like tons of images of extreme violence into my brain, like especially at night before bed or whatever. But I, I think there's something to that. I think, you know, I guess if you're, if you're watching it and you're really in a state of awareness and you have some separation from it or some, I don't know. You're not, you know, you're paying careful attention to your emotional response. Then maybe you can work your way through it without too much uh, difficulty. But it seems like at volume, putting that kind of stuff into our brains is not good for us and can lead to um, 
things like anxiety and depression, or it can exacerbate those things if they pre-exist. Mm-hmm. I think I think there's something to that. Yeah, um, something that I think about a lot is like in our our current um, I don't know era age. I don't know what the right um, term is, but like in the recent years, like things have gotten like darker and more depressing and, and more anxious, and especially they are right now, right? Um, and harder to handle. Um, and so I think it's, uh, there was a quote I read at one point. I don't remember who said it. It was someone really smart. Like, I think it was maybe Hannah Arendt, but like, um, it was something about how, um, in order to write satire, um, and if, and write it effectively that, um, the, the object or the person being satirized has to like basically be afraid of it or be be impacted by it in in some way um like they have to like fear the consequences of the satire um essentially so but now we live in a political reality where like it's impossible to like satirize uh trump and his administration because not only will they not feel any shame about it or any um like urgency about changing the narrative or or um you know, uh, responding to it. It'll just like, they'll dive deeper in and, and just respond in this like horribly, like extreme bully kind of way. Um, so I've often wondered like, what is the response to that? Like, then how do we effectively critique, um, some of what's going on? And I think my answer is becoming more empathetic and more, um, compassionate in a certain sense about um my characters and, and the world rather than becoming more flippant or more satirical um i mean me, moving forward i think that's maybe the direction i'm going to go in so like one of the, the latest stories in the book which is actually the first story is keith prime and that's about partially about like my sense of devastation about healthcare in this country and and how um, speaking of jobs and, and people and hierarchies, how some people are afforded care and some of the best care and some people, you know, might lose their house in order to receive adequate medical care. And um, I really wanted to, like, evoke that with, like, a sense of, of deep compassion. So um, I tried to go in that direction with story rather than maybe in a more flippant way as I did in, like, some of the earlier stories like I still think the age of love is a is a great story and like has a lot of empathy in it but it is more more jokey than say than say Keith Prime is you know so yeah it's it's funny to hear you say that because I've wrestled with this very same conundrum which is like what is the best way to respond to Trump and to all that is happening but it's specifically to his um, administration and the way that they conduct themselves at all levels, you know, but then especially what we see in the media, there is as like a hallmark of Trump throughout his life and career. It's just this, this like unbelievable absence of shame, just absolutely Mm -hmm. shameless human being who seems to get off on breaking the law and violating norms. Um, he loves to get caught. He doesn't want to be punished. You know, I'm kind of quoting, uh, Sarah Kenzier who has just, you know, recently guested on this program and, yeah, she's amazing. Yeah, I mean, she's she's right. You know, these guys love to flaunt it. These They love to flaunt 
the fact that they've been caught and nobody's doing anything to them. Um, and so it's kind of sounds like what you're saying is, you know, almost on some level, it's just to completely ignore them and to just conduct yourself, um, according to your own high standards and to try to put that into the world rather than giving them any oxygen at all. Yeah, that's what I think. I think that, um, you know, for Trump, like even like bad attention, even people like criticizing him is attention is it's good in that sense. And like, it's really impossible to satirize someone who feels no shame at all. Um, and so like the best, um, uh, way to deal with it. And the only way I've come to deal with it is to like either, you know, not provide him any attention or like just pay attention to what I have to in order to know what's going on and then respond in a deeply, in an empathetic way to, um, you know, the, the sad and upsetting things I see, I see going on. So, so where are you, uh, spiritually, do you have any kind of like spiritual inclination? I mean, I know we talked about therapy and I know we talked about psychology and kind of reading, uh, and researching in that realm, but to get through life as we know it today, like, do you have any kind of spiritual practice or approach that helps you? I don't. Um, I'm an, I'm an atheist, I'm afraid. Um, but like I do, um, really believe in like, you know, the goodness of people and empathy. And I think like most people really want to do good and really want to, um, contribute and connect. And, you know, it's only through like some learned behaviors of like either from traumas or losses and, or, you know, um, you know, sort of self-sabotaging things that were meant to be protective once, but are no, no longer serving them. Like only in that way, like do they become like sort of behave in ways that are, don't serve them, you know? Um, so I think people are mostly good. And I, and I, I try to remember that when I, when I think about the world and that helps, you know? Yeah. People, I mean, I like the thing I often say to myself is that everybody's for the most part is doing their best mm -hmm. and that doesn't necessarily mean it's good enough, but they are doing their best. <laughs> um, you know, we all fail to meet the mark so often, you know, I think about uh, my own self, how many times I screw up or do just boneheaded things or miss opportunities to help, uh, or I'm just like cranky and blind, you know, I mean, it, we all screw up so much, but it's not because of malicious intent. And when I feel, um, I can sometimes feel frustrated with humanity or with, you know, people around me, like even in an abstract way, I try to remind myself that, you know, who knows what, what people are going through, who knows what kind of suffering they're internalizing or repressing or, you know, wrestling with. And it's a tough life, you know, in so many respects. And I think that patience is, uh, needed. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And I, and I also believe people can really change. Um, maybe it has to do with wrestling with, uh, depression and like figuring out how to live better with it. But, um, you know, I do think that, um, I don't really believe in like having characters have epiphanies because I, I think that's too reductive. Like, in order to like change, you essentially have to have an epiphany over and over and over again. Like in dealing with depression, like I've thought like 
you can get into like habits and patterns of thinking, you know, so you'll, something will happen and you'll respond to it and you'll have to like remind yourself, oh, I'm like responding with this thought pattern that is, isn't helpful. And I can, you know, reapproach how I think about it or realign my thinking and approach it in a much more positive way that maybe even the way I was seeing it before isn't even based in reality, even though I thought it was like, um, so that's why I often have characters like the story will end and they'll have realized something that I want to give the reader a sense that like, Oh, this is like going to be work, but you know, it is possible to change. And I, I think that's hopeful too, though. Like you can put in the work and you can change and you can, you know, feel better. You don't, you know, deal with life in a more healthy way. You think Donald, you think Donald Trump could change? (laughs) No, no. I mean, I think there's exceptions. I think he's just purely evil. (laughs) Uh, I mean, in order to change, you also have to want to change, you know? Um, So, and he clearly doesn't want to. So, yeah, he seems like he's kind of beyond help. I mean, you know, maybe that's not the, the, the biggest hearted thing I could say, maybe there's some, someone who could possibly reach a person like him, but my God, you know, what a, uh, miserable human he seems to be. Oh, he's always horrible. You know I mean? That's, what's hard, you know? Um, I, I know I had a, I had a therapist at, at one point. Um, like she also, I don't know if she worked with children herself or that she just knew this was, um, something that they did with children in therapy, but, um, they will, show like a a child like a cube right and the cube will have a different color painted on each side and so they'll say it to like the child like they'll they'll, um, hold up the cube and they'll say what color is the cube and the child will say like red and they'll flip it to a different side and say okay what color is the cube now and the child will say like oh yellow or blue or purple or whatever color it is and um, the therapist will say like well can you see how like the person that that hurt you like when they're being when they were nice to you, like it's the same person as the person who like really hurt you. It's like that's just different colors, but it's the same cube. And I, I think about that. It's just such a it was such an elegant and simple way of putting it that I, I think about it a lot. Yeah, that's beautiful. I might have to use that on my kids. Yeah. I mean, it helps. Right. It's like it's true. It's like, all, you know, we want to split people into like good or bad and maybe partially we, we get that, that narrative from like overly simplistic TV or stories sometimes. I don't know, but people generally aren't good or bad. You know, it's like, I sometimes rail against the, the likability, like, Oh, this character isn't uh, super likable. It's like, well, you know, everybody has different, um, sides and like, that doesn't mean they're, um, that's really who they are or like that, that, that they're not redeemable. Um, or even like, you know, someone who's naturally like pretty um, amiable and likable and, and fun. Like if they're experiencing a huge loss, they might not be super likable for a while if they're grieving, you know, they might be kind of a bummer to be around. So we all go through like different phases and, and moods and have so many different nuances and sides of us. But I, I, those are all worth exploring, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I don't want to talk too much more about Trump just because he's such a bummer, but you know, we can talk about how he's irredeemable. We can talk about how he's evil. I think he's also damaged. And I think, you know, uh, part of it is that he was just damaged as a boy. I think his, his father and his mom did a number on him in, 
you know, caused a lot of what we're seeing today in many ways. But the other thing that freaks me out is uh, not just with him, but generally is this notion of, um, you know, genetic psychopathy, if that's the right way to put it. You know, like I read an article, I think it's like the most haunting article I've ever read, but it was about children who are diagnosed as psychopaths. Like you'll have like normal parent, you know, or typical parents who, uh, you know, just like dad's a realtor and mom's a, uh, registered nurse and they had a baby and they were so excited to start a family. And then they had a beautiful little uh, girl and, you know, she's sweet as can be and everything's fine. And then they have a little boy and they're growing their family. And it, they come home one day, the boy's like three years old and he's, he's got a butcher knife and he's chasing his sister around, <laughs> you know, like, like, you know, that's n not exactly what the article uh, depicts, but it, it's close, you know, like, and there are people who are just born with a chip missing, it seems like. Uh, yeah, a little bit about that, too. Did you ever read um, John Ronson's The Psychopath Test? Uh, no. Uh -uh. He, wrote, he wrote a book about it and it was like involved like interviews he had conducted and different things, too. It's really interesting. You, you might find it. I don't know if you want right now, if that's be good reading right now, but maybe down the road. Well, no, I mean, I read uh, something, but there was an author, kind of like a mid 20th century author, I think, named Hervey Cleckley. Um, maybe Ronson referenced him in his book. I don't know. But, you know, it's basically all about psychopaths and how they function in society and how often they're high functioning. You know, you you have somebody in like a position of authority in a corporation who's making all these decisions and often doing things that are at odds with, uh, you know, what's in the best interest of people, you know, or like his workers or her workers. And they're able to do these things or, or, you know, at, at the level of government, you know, you're making extremely consequential decisions that are going to harm a lot of people and you're doing it without losing a wink of sleep. Like, how does that happen? And I, I guess maybe this has something to do with, uh, like, why is the word capitalism bubbling up in my mind? You know, you have a system that almost requires there to be people who can do those sorts of things. Otherwise, how are the decisions going to get made? If you have like a a person like you or I in that in that room, <laughs> I'm going to be sitting there like wrestling with it. And, you know, it would be a nightmare. I would never be able to make the call. But I guess maybe it's something you get good at with practice or maybe it's something that you're wired for. Yeah, I mean, it is very interesting to think about. Um, you know, it's true that some, like, they've done, like, MRIs on people, and then people, some people's brains do seem to be different. Um, and it is sort of disturbing to think about, like, some people lack the capacity for empathy, you know, which seems, like, so integral and, like, important to our humanity and, like, the fact that we're such social animals, too. It seems like... Like, how is, how does that happen even? Um, but, um, something I think about too is like, just because you have that condition, maybe it's uh, psychopathy or that kind of a brain that's wired in that respect doesn't mean you actually become a person who, you know, is, um, you know, behaving in ways that like really harm other people or are able to, you know, shut totally shut off from other people. Um, I remember there was an article I read, I think it was a neuroscientist had scanned his own brain and noticed that he had like some psychopathic brain tendencies in terms of like not being as empathetic, but like he, he's just like, he learned about himself and like, was like, well, I, you know, I have, I, you know, I have feelings for my, my wife and my kids. And, you know, I don't think I would behave in this way. I don't know. 
Um, maybe he's not like the classic case or something, but I think I read that article. Yeah, yeah. So you, you know the one I'm talking about. You know, it was it was sort of interesting. It's like just because, and you know, so just because somebody has this, maybe even this condition, doesn't mean they become a person who uh, would say like, oh, well, it doesn't doesn't matter if this many people die or or you know don't have insurance and therefore like won't get care. I don't know or whatever like kind of really dissociated thing they could potentially say. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to get too creepy and I don't want to get into territory where I don't have uh, a full working knowledge, but I, I want to say I read something about like, there's a category of uh, pedophiles or people with a tendency toward that kind of sexual behavior who are equipped with like a, a moral sense that lets them know that th this is not the thing to do. And yet they have that urge. Have you ever read about this before? And like, it's like this big, you know, struggle basically, but they're, they're basically, uh, committing themselves to a life of, uh, what's the word I'm going to, uh, celibacy, you know, because they realize that to act on their impulses or on their, uh, you know, their interests would be, uh, you know, both criminal and harmful. So maybe it's kind of the same, kind of the same thing like you're a psychopath you know you're a psychopath and yet you're not going to act on whatever psychopathic impulses may occur to you like it's like it's like uncomfortable to even contemplate assuming that it's true that there could be these kinds of levels of complexity to to certain people but mm -hmm. i guess i'm willing to entertain it i mean right it, like it seems at least at first blush like possible that this could exist yeah um i mean i think i've i've heard um, what you're talking about as well um people who really struggle to to um not in, give into those impulses because they know how hurtful and harmful it is um and you know that's really important because it is so hurtful and harmful <laughs> right um, maybe you can work it out in a story at some point or i don't know it's just it's I like don't know, I, don't I don't know if i can go there yeah it's a weird ter <laughs> it's a weird territory i'm sorry i brought it up Okay, I think Adam Johnson actually went there, and um, I forget which story collection it was, but he has like a a story that kind of kind of goes there a little bit. Yeah. Um, There's always going to be somebody who will take it on, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah it's, I mean, capitalism in some senses seems like sometimes like a psychopathic enterprise. That's why, like, you know, as you were mentioning about work and jobs, like. I, I do want to critique it. Like I, I do want to critique how we treat people in lower wage jobs and how we don't see them. And like sometimes it, like with content moderators or um, other people in, in certain jobs, like um, if you, they're doing their work correctly, it's invisible. You know, um, if a content moderator does their job perfectly, which is impossible because there's just so much content that's out there and, and constantly, um, being added to the internet. Um, but if they, if they could do their job perfectly, we wouldn't know they exist, you know, cause we would never see the, the content, the upsetting content. Um, and, um, so I do think about capitalism and invisibility and, and who, who gets priority and who gets to be seen and who gets to be cared for. Um, the same with like our healthcare system, like that, in that first story, like, um, I mean, obviously we're not, the, the story is sort of like a send up or like an homage to Never Let Me Go, which is one of my favorite novels. Um, I really wanted to explore like 
the bureaucratic side of that novel. Like it sort of uh, follows like the clones, you know. Um, and and the story that you're referring to is called Keith Prime. Yes, yes. Um, so, um, and that that's sort of like an examination of like. Um, mega corporations like Amazon control, controlling so much about our lives and having so much money, they seem like untouchable in a certain sense. And, um, you know, the, 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 the term too big to fail, even though that's was applied to banks, it sort of feels the same. Um, like they're just these overwhelming, overwhelmingly powerful forces, but like, you know, they have people in their warehouses who, who work for them, who are exploited and like, unseen you know um and uh i wanted to like explore those kind of jobs and also contrast that some at some points to like more highly visible jobs like the the story that has um the woman who works as who's a famous architect you know and she's she's highly visible though becoming though being visible doesn't necessarily mean that's good because she sort of has a reputation that she's gotten for being like sort of a I don't know, manipulative or, um, you know, art monstery kind of person. And, um, so I don't know. I'm, I'm curious how like capital, capitalism, um, both makes pe- some people very visible and very cared for, but also potentially turned into targets and how like then at times it makes other people like very vulnerable and invisible and seemingly expendable. And I, I think I want to critique that. I find it very troubling and upsetting. Yeah, I do too. I mean, and and the thing too is that it's such a big, unwieldy beast that it's hard to, it's hard for me anyway to wrap my brain fully around it. But I, I, I am given oftentimes like a, a, just a kind of visceral feeling of unease when I think about the way things are going and how most people seem to be conducting their work lives and how much stress is out there and how much um like like intense and unhealthy competition and uh you know i've seen in work situations in my life you know the way that people can deteriorate under pressures that are put upon them uh who are working insane hours who are treating people terribly uh not only as a matter of personal feeling i think but also because they're just under so much pressure that they they just kind of crumble in that department so it's just maybe the word is corrosive you know i'm just like is this the best we can do is this really the best system for everybody it seems to be working really well for a small number of people and for the like the overwhelming majority it's it's a uh it's a huge pain in the ass (laughs) Yeah, and you had to put it lightly, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like going back to your comment about psychopathy, like I don't know how someone can work for like a an insurance company, a big insurance company, and like deny people coverage or um, you know make it so that you know people are going to go bankrupt or lose their homes because of not being able to pay for medical care. Well, I mean, the, that, the thing is, is that if that person leaves that job, then they'll be losing their home. And I think about this when it comes to like weapons manufacturing or, you know, d- working these jobs that have like a, um, an obvious destructive quality to them, uh, even like world destructive quality to them and what to do about that. And it's like, well, do you quit? And mm-hmm. I think the, my reflex is to say, yes, you get out of there. Like, don't do that job. 
but then the then like the 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 um the gray area you know that i tend to live in like emerges again and i start to think well you know what if that person quits that job they'll just hire somebody else they'll hire somebody else to come in and do it and uh it'll it'll the machine will just keep churning and you'll be out of work so maybe the better and the person who replaces you might be uh you know, might be less uh, empathetic and aware than you are. And so the situation could actually get worse in your absence. So maybe the answer is for you to stay there and to try to affect change from the inside or to do the job with like a level of mindfulness that might not otherwise exist. Like, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I do. Um, I mean, that's, that's the part, big part of the problem, right? Um, like that's that's something I'm interested in exploring too. Is like how we get indoctrinated into reality, into accepting, like just this is how it is, you know. Um, like someone will be there to probably come and take a job if you leave it. Just and because this is how we accept that this is what it is. It's like, well, you know, I need money, I need this, I need that. I have to pay my rent. I need to eat food. I need, you know need to support my family. Like. Um, and like how we just learn to accept like certain things that are, you know, we, we don't necessarily have to accept them, but we're sort of indoctrinated into accepting them. Like the fact that content moderators exist or those jobs are, should, should exist. I don't know. Mm. Um, and different capitalistic, capitalistic jobs should exist. You know, how do we, um, because if we did accept those things, like communally, we they wouldn't, right? It's like nobody agreed to work for a health insurance company, then um, they wouldn't be able to perform business, right? Yeah, but like, good luck with that. I mean, that's like I yeah. I, I would love to see that, but it's never going to happen. I no, can't. You know, people will take those jobs. I mean, those guys, especially at those executives, they're getting paid through the nose. It's it's so obscene. Uh, but one of the things, you know, uh, about the situation that we're in currently with this pandemic, uh, the coronavirus pandemic of uh, 2020 and how, you know, at least when you and I are talking, everything has come more or less to a halt with the exception of, you know, essential businesses, like pharmacies and banks and grocery stores or whatever. Um, like if there's a silver lining in it, uh, because, you know, it's obviously a time of enormous suffering. It, it is, uh, and I've, I've remarked about this to a few of my friends and, and maybe on this show before, I, I can't quite recall, but there's something radical about it. There's something radical about the time that we're living in with respect to capitalism and the ways in which the system has stopped. Like, I, I don't see any precedent for it in my lifetime or maybe even in, in our history, uh, at least to this level, I, you know, after nine 11, there were a few days where everybody was just sort of, you know, paused in days, but people still went out. People still went to work. The machine still kept running mostly. Mm -hmm. Uh, but this is a different thing. And, you know, I guess like if I'm, I'm like, you know, searching for ways to feel better about things, I'm like, well, maybe this is going to give people a chance to, turn inward a little bit. Maybe this is going to give people a chance to reevaluate and rethink the way that we're approaching things. And then, uh, you know, on a more external level, it's like, well, you know, I just read an article this morning, that pollution levels in India have dropped like radically, uh, you know, over the past couple of weeks, ever since they put in a shelter in place order. And so, you know, even though Trump has fucked this up, 
miserably and has caused untold suffering, um, the situation that we're in now basically puts us back into accordance with the Paris Climate Accords. So, like, you know, like yeah. at least we have that going for us. You know, with the with the capitalist machine stopped, we're not you know dumping as much uh, pollution into the atmosphere. Well, I mean, I think it has. I mean, that is good too. Um, but I also think, as you were saying, like it has shown that like a lot of things we just accepted as as um, the you know how things had to be are not how things had to be. Like people have said like, oh, you know, all that time I was asking my boss if I could work remotely and they said no. And we're asking if like we could, could we make this conference accessible? And they said no. Like actually it was totally possible to do that this whole time. You know, it was totally possible to like, you know, rework some of the, the structures that we've come to accept. Um, and so I think it is revealing a lot that like, you know, a lot of things that were, you know, illusions, essentially, um, or, you know, capitalism is just one way of organizing our reality. It's not it's not how reality is or has to be, you know. Yeah. And hopefully people are registering this, you know, I, like there's such a there's such a strong impulse in me to want to believe that we can really make a dramatic change. Uh, there can be a dramatic shift in consciousness that is not occasioned by something like truly horrific. I mean, this is horrific, but I always think that like, well, is it going to take like some kind of like hot, like nuclear Holocaust for people to suddenly go, okay, we were on the wrong path, you know, time to reassess, okay. you know, okay. like, is that it can sometimes feel like that's what humanity is headed for either like complete self-destruction and annihilation or just something so horrific, like a reality so horrific that it forces our hand. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I have had in the past, you know, couple of weeks, uh, in particular, as this pandemic has spread, you know, has spread and, um, you know, the numbers of sick and dying have ticked up. I'm, I'm thinking to myself, like, wow, is this Mother Nature putting a check on us or what? Like, it almost feels that way, right? Because we've been so destructive to the planet and to our environment. Um, I don't know. Is that magical thinking? It almost feels like this is some pushback. Um, I mean, it's it's. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't believe in in that kind of thing, though it's tempting to sometimes. Isn't it? Come on, you got to leave your world of atheism and get into the world of, <laughs> of like the Earth Mother Gaia is pissed off and she's trying to teach us a lesson. I mean, I would, I would love that. I mean, if it were like some sort of Fern Gully situation like that, <laughs> you know. Um, I mean, not that I, I am, I'm very upset by like the idea of, of people suffering and dying. It's like what's happening and, you know, people not even be able to be around their loved ones to, when they say goodbye or people having like, um, you know, zoom funerals or something like that. It's just like deeply, deeply depressing to me. So, um, but, um, I don't know. I just hope we don't, I hope there, it does unlock some things and we don't go back in certain senses. And I think some people won't, you know, like speaking of, of, um, lower wage jobs, like people who are keeping things running right now, like, um, you know, employees of grocery stores and people who are delivering mail, um, and are, are still going to work and, and making things possible for the rest of us. Like they deserve to be, appreciated and paid more and and you know get sick leave benefits that's like the bare minimum and i like it shows how like you know essential they really are and how like important these jobs really are 
So. And all and like you know, there are, there are probably a million examples like this, but a, the the big one that comes to mind is how horribly uh, underpaid and mistreated the Amazon warehouse workers are who work for Jeff Bezos. Like the stories I've read about that. Uh, thinking about it now in this context, I mean, it was it, it pissed me off before, but now it's just uh, outrageous. Like, I hope that, you know, I, I, I'm not going to hold my breath to think that suddenly these business tycoons are going to, you know, come to their senses and start realizing that these people des- deserve to be paid 30 bucks an hour minimum or whatever it is. Um, but hopefully there can be some kind of uh, unionizing it, where it does not exist. And these people will realize that collectively they have some power if they can get it together. Um, it's not always easy. I think there are like systemic um, obstacles that have been put in place to make this kind of organizing uh, either difficult or impossible in some situations. But that seems to me what is so often lacking um, when it comes to capitalistic imbalances that there's no collective bargaining power for working people. And in the absence of that, you're going to have guys like Jeff Bezos who are worth, you know, what is he worth a hundred billion dollars or whatever it is. And you're going to have some Amazon warehouse employee who's making 15 bucks an hour at best. And who's like peeing in a bucket trying to like get orders boxed or whatever. And it's just, it's uh, it's inhuman. It is inhuman. And you know, it's, it's even more disgusting. I think that um, during this Jeff, and his company, which is just worth, I don't even know how, how many untold billions, um, was asking for people to donate money to like help pay for like employee sick leave or, or vacation pay during this crisis. Oh my God. And it's like, you have to be kidding me. Yeah, no. And, uh, like, I don't want to like, this is this one. I, I got to make sure that the facts are straight on this, but I want to say I read an article recently where and it was like a positive article. It was like Larry David has started a GoFundMe for the caddies at Riviera Country Club in Pacific Palisades, and because you know it's like oh, these caddies who ca- carry my golf clubs, like what are they going to do during coronavirus or whatever? And that's a that's a valid concern. Like you know to be thinking of uh, the people who carry golf clubs for people and like how they're going to suddenly be out of work. But they were trying to raise one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Like that was the GoFundMe goal. And I'm thinking to myself, Larry David's worth like a half a billion dollars. Like, write a fucking check, dude. Like, what are you doing starting a GoFundMe? You know, like, no, like <laughs> the billionaires do not care and they're not going to save us. You know, even if they make some gestures in that respect, it's just, you know, it, it shows how like little they really are willing to, to contribute or um, um, alter their behavior in a time of crisis, you know, yeah, like, what, just, like uh, surprised me. Look at all of them, like building like survivalist shelters and like, um, trying to go to Mars and all of this stuff, you know, um, they don't like, it doesn't seem like they care about the earth or people in it. I, no, I think, I think a lot of them, um, if not a majority of them, they look at it as an opportunity to make money. Mm-hmm. And this is what is so twisted. This, this to me feels like maybe like the, uh, you know, the, the, the capitalistic impulse taken to its most uh, and most extreme and, and darkest point is that, you know, like you think about climate change, you know, yeah, you know, the polar ice caps are going to melt and the sea levels are going to rise and much of the earth is going to become an uninhabitable hell filled with communicable disease and untold levels of poverty. But for those of us who happen to have a stranglehold on capital we're going to be able to make bank on this and we're going to have 
like like somebody out there who's like a you know maybe it'll be you but somebody who has like a like a sci-fi bent or some sort of sort of like cultural um criticism bent to their fiction like i think we're going to see in the future uh among the one percent or among the economic elites of the world um what i like to call a bipolar existence where like people are going to wind up having multiple homes and they're going to have homes in different poles of the planet so Mm -hmm. like in the winter you're going to see them all go to the northern hemisphere and then when it gets hot in the northern hemisphere they're going to go down to the southern hemisphere leaving the rest of us just to sort of like cook wherever we happen to be. You know, like, yeah, yeah. I think that's probably on par. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, that's why people have, I've been asked um, in, um, in terms of doing some of the promo for this book, like, you know, how do you determine if like the story is like more realistic versus like more dystopian? And, and I'm like, well, you know, our current reality feels very dystopic to me. So like, even the story, like the Keith Prime uh, story, which involves, you know, cloning and then harvesting people. It's like, well, it's like not really that far off from where we are now, because a lot of that is like a send up of, you know, these huge corporations like Amazon and, and how they treat their workers um, and, and what's coming, you know, mm. what seems to be on the on the horizon for us in the near future. So it's like it's not really even doesn't seem that far off to me like i already have to invent that much right um, well before i let you go i want to ask you a little bit about where you're from i haven't gotten too much info on like you know where you where you grew up or how you got into this racket in the first place so where are you from um so i'm from minnesota um i grew up in like um uh it's like a more rural it was still a suburb but it was more rural like um area of Minnesota. And, um, then, uh, I bounced around the country a little bit. I, um, worked, I went to school, I went to college in Chicago and then worked in Chicago a little bit, lived in LA for actually a little bit, and then came out to New York for my MFA program and stayed and, and, uh, um, have, uh, pursued writing since then and worked a bunch of different jobs. Um, um, I've waited tables. I've um, actually done writing for Google. It was like their version of Groupon, you know, Google offers. I've done SEO copywriting. Um, and done, uh, that, that sounds you know, that sounds electrifying. There. Yeah, it's not it's not that it's not very fun. <laughs> uh-huh. And um, you know, Google was uh, Google was kind of funny and interesting. Like I was doing writing all of these like offers, you know, like you know, spend a hundred dollars and get. $200 worth of it at this local spa. It was like offers like that all around the country. And, um, I remember them saying to me, like, you know, you have to make these, this more googly. You have to make it sound more googly. And I was like, well, what does googly sound like? You know, um, they're like, well, just think of a Google doodle and make your prose sound like that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, so yeah, but I've always like wanted to be a writer and maybe it has to be like um, my parents had a really tough time having children and then as I said like some early tragedy then like sort of put a damper on having more children after that. But um right, are you an only child? Oh well, yeah, I'm an only child um, cuz they yeah. Um and so like I often to pass the time I would like read a lot and have a lot of solitary time partially being out more in a more removed area. 
What, so, where, my wife is from Minnesota. Where are you? Uh, she grew up in like suburban Minneapolis. Where, where were you? Like, where exactly were you from? It was um, out in Rosemount, um, like sort of in the edge of Rosemount, sort of on your way to more farms and like Carleton College and that kind of stuff. It was like not a far drive from there. But then so it would be like an hour to get into like the cities, though. And then like, you know, it was still fairly suburban, but it was just a little bit more like sort of country-ish feeling. But you didn't like grow up on a farm. No, but my my uh, my mother comes from like northern Minnesota, and um, from like long line of of Norwegian farmers, and like they owned a farm, and she grew up like working on a farm, so she has that really thick Minnesota accent. Yeah, my uh, my uh, mother in law didn't grow up in Minnesota, but she grew up on a farm in uh, Kansas. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think I was just talking about this recently, but yeah, so weird. That's a weird commonality. Um, and then you, uh, you grew up, you said you were an only child, so you were kind of solitary and reading lots of books and you knew as a kid that you wanted to do this. I did. Yeah. I always just wanted to, to write and, um, make up stories and, um, write books. So. And now look at you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> and you went to Columbia to get your MFA? I did. Yeah. That's awesome. So- yeah, it was great. Though now I have a very high student loan burden. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, did they give you funding? Or did that like that's uh, doesn't sound like it. I got a little bit. I got a little bit my second year, oh, but good. yeah, but uh, that's another reason. Like I'm like, you know, forgive student loan debt. <laughs> forgive yeah. my figures of student loan debt. I, I I had like a defining conversation about student loan debt years ago on this program with Ben Fountain. Um, and I, I quote it every time the issue comes up, like it is absolutely perverse that we are asking young people to assume an, an enormous debt burden coming out of college, uh, when, you know, and, and we, we, uh, couch it to them as like, you know, saying that they should be investing in themselves and investing in their future. Right. It's like, you know, you, this is your debt burden and you're going to go get your education, but you're making an investment in yourself. And it's like, no, we should be investing in young people so that they get educated and they can come out of school without a debt burden and be productive, participating members uh, in society and in the economy without having to, uh, you know, be like basically straitjacketed by this uh, like terrifying financial burden. That's mm-hmm. a, I'm on a soapbox, but I mean, that just that, that to me, that basic logic, like, you know, flipping the whole invest in yourself logic on its head uh, like nothing else needs to be said to me. Like that sounds entirely convincing. I think we're doing it exactly backwards. We are, we are. And like, you know, turning, um, student debt into like some sort of money making scheme. Like even if it were just the debt itself, I'd like really be devoted to repaying it. But like the debt, like accumulates interest and then the interest accumulates interest. You know, it's like, that doesn't seem fair. No, <laughs> you know, I'll be paying like twice the amount of my education or more that my education was actually than the actual price tag of it, you know? Oh my God. Well, so, hopefully, hopefully this podcast sells, sells you thousands and thousands <laughs> of copies of your book. Thank you. I hope so too. <laughs> um, it's been really nice talking to you, albeit over the transom. We were supposed to do this in person, but um, you know, we have uh, extenuating circumstances. So yeah. I wish you well in New York City. Stay safe uh, there in Alphabet City, and uh, and congratulations on your story collection and on uh, the novel, 
which you are working on, or is it finished? What, what's it called? Do we have a name? Uh, no name yet. I'm, I'm in the beginning stages of it. But yeah, I'm excited to be doing more work on it. But it's like rich, rich people turning themselves into household appliances. That's the gist. Well, it's not. It's not willingly. But um, yeah, they're they're rich women are returning into like microwaves and and flat screen TVs and stuff. Well, a lot of women. But this is set in like a hospice. There, the rich women can um, receive like sort of um, extraordinary care where where um, you know women who are not wealthy can't can't have the same level of care and, and support so yeah all right well the exploration <laughs> <laughs> well i'm uh i i'm excited for it uh it'd be interesting to see what you come up with it sounds so wild to me i'm like how is she going to pull this off but I ha- <laughs> i'm asking myself the same question <laughs> <laughs> i have faith in you i have faith in you mary uh th- thanks for taking the time to talk with me and uh be well thank you same to you All right, guys, that's Mary South. Her debut story collection is called You Will Never Be Forgotten. It is available from FSG Originals. You can find Mary on the Internet at marysouth.net. You can follow her on Twitter at Mary South. The book, one more time, is called You Will Never Be Forgotten. Go get your copy. Support a debut author. If you would like to support this podcast, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. The entire archive of this program is made available for free. Hundreds of episodes, all available free of charge. It's a listener-supported show. If you would like to write to me, if you have something you need to say, you can email me at letters at otherppl.com. That's letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Don't forget, this program has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. Get it wherever you get your apps. Next up on the program, I have uh, Chelsea Beaker. She's got a novel out on Catapult Press. It's called Godshot, and I had a great conversation with her. So that's coming up next time. I apologize for the lack of Sunday episodes. It's just been too hectic. I hope you can understand. Trying to deal with my uh, children. I clean my house on Saturdays. I'm the house cleaner. That's my job. I kind of like it. I like the feeling of accomplishment. Sanity. Order. I like to be clean. I make no apologies. I refuse to live in filth, even during a pandemic apocalypse. Went for a nice bike ride yesterday, up into the hills. Gotta get outside. Gotta ride a bike. Just ride your bike. (laughs) 